Stay tuned for Upwelling. Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today, I'm pleased to interview local journalist and historian Malcolm McDonald about his 2022 release, Mendocino History Exposed, and musicians Gwyneth Moreland and Morgan Daniel about songwriting and their upcoming release, Foxglove. Upwelling brings the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I have with me today Malcolm McDonald. And he's going to be reading from his historical nonfiction book, Mendocino History Exposed. And his first reading is Tire Baby. Mr. and Mrs. R.J. Murray of Fort Bragg called at the garage of James McSenta on West Street in Healdsburg the first Sunday of June 1926 to purchase a pair of tires for their automobile, telling Mr. McSenta that they were bound for home in Fort Bragg and the old casings would not hold out for the length of the trip. Mrs. Murray carried a giggly, blue-eyed, six-month-old baby boy in her arms, and while her husband was attempting to conclude a transaction with McSenta, it became clear that Mr. Murray was lacking in the needed funds. Mr. Murray offered to leave the baby with Mr. McSenta, the garage man, until he, Mr. Murray, could obtain the, the necessary funds to pay the bill. At this point, McSenta telephoned to his wife describing the situation. Apparently, the McSentas, being childless, accepted the proposition put to them by the Murrays. Mr. McSenta helped Murray mount the two new tires, valued at $12.50. The infant was transferred into McSenta's arms, and the Murrays wended their way north to Mendocino County and its coast. The public notoriety given the Murrays once the proposition ran in newspapers was one thing, but Sonoma County legal authorities read the papers, too. District Attorney George W. Hoyle, as well as Sonoma County Probation Officer John P. Plover, commenced an investigation into the unusual transaction. In the meantime, Mr. and Mrs. Murray returned to Healdsburg. Law enforcement promptly arrested Mr. Murray on a charge of petty larceny based upon a warrant sworn by H.G. Grant, a Cloverdale merchant, who accused Murray of having stolen a dress from his store during the previous week. Both the Murrays and McSenta denied to authorities that the baby was pawned over to the garage owner. Mr. Murray claimed he had promised to pay $1 per day for the infant's care until he and or his wife returned for the child. The authorities were having none of Murray's excuses. Probation officer Plover escorted Murray to Santa Rosa and lodged him in the county jail. Mrs. Murray was also detained pending a hearing of the case in the Sonoma County court system. Readers would presume that, among other queries, Mrs. Murray's motives in the matter would have come into question. Meanwhile, with the auto returned to him, McSenta removed the unpaid four tires. Newspaper accounts made mention of Mr. Murray's Portuguese ancestry and his residence in Fort Bragg for several years, making a name for himself as a local prizefighter. The Sonoma County probation officer filed a petition to have the infant, named Roy, declared a ward of the juvenile court. Mr. and Mrs. McSenta expressed a desire to adopt the child. A somewhat bizarre follow-up twist on this story was recounted in a Healdsburg Tribune story precisely two years after the Tire Baby affair. Quote, 
the 18-month-old baby boy, which has been in the McSenta home since it was a few days old, was taken from the local couple to Ukiah, where it will likely be put in a home of some kind. The child was taken away from McSenta by probation officer John Plover, upon request by the Mendocino County probation officer. McSenta was endeavoring to get papers of adoption for the child when the opposition occurred. It appears McSenta brought the child here from Ukiah when the latter was only a few days old, after the parents, whose name could not be learned, had given him permission to take it to his home to bring up. McSenta, proprietor of a West Street tire store, recently bought a small ranch near Lytton, and it was the home there that was visited by the officials this week. End quote. This was not the tire baby as the Healdsburg Tribune article finally makes clear, again quoting the Tribune. McSenta received statewide newspaper publicity two years ago when he obtained from some tourists a laughing blue-eyed baby boy in exchange for some automobile tires. He kept that child only a few days and was forced to part with it when the law interfered and brought the negligent parents to task. It was not many months afterward that it was announced Mr. and Mrs. McSenta were the parents of a little son, and the child has been regarded here as a son of the local people since that time, end quote. In 1930, Roy Murray, father of the tire baby, was back in his hometown of Fort Bragg while his wife, Grace, resided in the Bay Area tending to a newborn as well as her four-year-old. Roy Murray, along with three of his brothers, managed to get arrested after a family squabble with neighbors turned into a fisticuffs brawl. Murray didn't stay arrested long in Mendocino County because law enforcement from Oakland took him away on a charge of failing to support his spouse and children. As this was happening, Murray's father decided to take on the same neighbor his sons had gone after. Mr. Murray, age 63, packed a shovel to that fight. Unfortunately for him, after a couple of glancing blows, the neighbor... Roy Owen grabbed the shovel away and struck Mr. Murray at least twice in the head. He staggered through the brush for some distance before collapsing. Some time later, local constables tracked his steps and located the older Murray. He succumbed to his injuries in a few days. Mr. Owen was initially charged with murder but was later released by Judge Golden under a theory of self-defense. As for the Murrays and their son, the Tire Baby, they all made an appearance in the San Francisco Superior Court in 1935. Roy J. Murray Sr. asked the judge to send him to Folsom Prison. The probation officer had recommended a mere year in county jail, but Murray insisted, I want to go back to Folsom. I love my wife, Grace, and the children, but she's living with another man. I want her to be happy, so I want to get as far away as possible. Send me to Folsom for life. By then, Roy Jr. had two younger brothers. All we know about the tire baby beyond this time is that he grew to be about 5 feet 10 inches tall, of medium weight at the time he entered the military in the last year of World War II. He served as an able-bodied seaman on several ships, including one of the, quote, victory ships, the SS San Mateo. In a tidbit of irony, the tire baby died in San Mateo in his early 60s. He outlived his mother by 35 years and his father by only three. That's a fabulous story. The McSentes really wanted a baby. <laughs> it would appear so. Okay. 
The book spans a period in Mendocino from 1820 through World War II, but you open it with Moby Dick, a decidedly New England tale, and yet you found a connection between this classic and Mendocino in J. Ross Brown. Was it synchronicity, fate, or luck that you found this connection? Probably a little of all those things. I had started rereading, as I think the introduction to the story explains, rereading Moby Dick, and I also was aware of J. Ross Brown and some of his exploits in California in the very early part of its statehood, and then the rest I just put together. So the book includes many tales about early settlers who exploited the native population for their own gains. Was this a continuing theme in the research you did? I wouldn't say there was a continuing theme. The J. Ross Brown story, the one that connects to Moby Dick, is definitely about that, in that J. Ross Brown investigated the Mendocino Reservation. The Mendocino Indian Reservation ran roughly from Pudding Creek to Ten Mile River and then inland several miles, and it was grossly mismanaged. J. Ross Brown was a government figure who exposed that. There was also a man named G. Canning Smith who helped. He was was an employee at the reservation who was played a big role in that. The story of the frolic that founded off Mendocino near Russian Gulch is not here. And the story of the house of ill repute, which I believe you wrote a story for the AVA on. Yeah. That the good religious folk of Fort Bragg rendered inaccessible by blowing up a bridge is also missing. Why are these two very sensational stories not here? The most blunt answer is I'm not really interested in the frolic that much. It's been covered in many other places. So maybe for that reason, I don't, I don't care. I mean, it does precipitate things like Mr. Ford coming to Mendocino and then thus the lumbering business up and down Big River and those sort of things. So it is a crucial episode in local history and kind of precipitates the Anglo part of local history. And the history of Gus West and the, the island uh, with the brothel on it is interesting and it didn't make the cut for this book let's put it that way I wouldn't say that it might not be in some future collection but it, again it's been told a few times in different places several of the stories focus on scaff laws criminals. outlaws and criminals mm-hmm. and the justice system that pursued them who's your favorite arm of the law and who is your favorite criminal in this group of stories my favorites amongst law enforcement there's multiple ones but as far as stories go two that go back at least a century or more jeremiah m stanley who was known as doc stanley most people wouldn't even know his real first name because he was just called Doc from childhood on. And there was a, a lawman in the early 20th century up through World War II times. He served as sheriff off and on from the 1910s into the World War II period. It's a man named Ralph Burns who had connections to a, my family. Uh, my ancestors and the Burns family were friends for a long period of time. Doc Stanley probably comes off a little more colorfully, although there's there's more to Ralph Burns. He only gets one story in this, and it's not as long as the story that's about Doc Stanley's first arrest as a deputy sheriff in the 1860s. 
Speaking of Doc Stanley's first arrest, it stood out to me as a great story for a Western film. And have you considered a screenplay? It's kind of funny that you brought that up because there's actually another story that's a book-length story that does involve Doc Stanley as one of the principal figures in it. That Doc Stanley's first arrest is kind of an epic story in that it covers events from some of the earliest white settlement in the mid-1850s in Leggett Valley through the end of it takes place in the mid-1880s, so 30 years later. You have several stories that stem from a feud between the Coates and Frost families. Do you know if these families are still present in the county? Indeed I do, because when I published different versions of these stories, In the newspaper, I've received emails from especially descendants of the Frost family, which seems more likely because in the gunfight between the Frost and Coates families, five Coateses were killed and only one member of the Frost family was killed. So I guess the ratio of of communications would be about the same. But there definitely are descendants of the Frost still in, in this region. The Comshi Fire of 1931 is a harrowing story of survival. It gave me goosebumps reading it, and I didn't finish the question. Well, you don't have to finish the question. That's a story <laughs> that I've known about because my mother participated in it in a small way. She went to school at the Keene Summit Elementary School, the same building is there, slightly modified now. It's on the Flynn Creek Road as you go from Compshe towards the Navarro River Road. She was in that schoolhouse after school cleaning erasers and things like that for which she was paid some small fee per week by the school teacher Merle Smith. The descendants of Merle Smith still live across the road from the schoolhouse and my mom was out was cleaning the erasers when a chunk of redwood bark with flames, you know, flaming and smoking, came flying through the air and went right over her head, part of the Comche Fire. And the Comche Fire swept along, almost right along the Flynn Creek Road. It skipped both the Smith house, my mother, and the schoolhouse. And just to the north of them, it missed the Newman family house, but completely demolished the Thompson house right below it and slightly south of it. It was quite a story. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Malcolm McDonald about his 2022 release, Mendocino History Exposed. But first, let's listen to Hazy California Wildfire Sunset, written and performed by Morgan Daniel with Gwyneth Moreland on backup vocals. It's a hazy California wildfire sunset At the end of another crazy California day And I'm feeling lazy, so I warn ya I'm just gonna let this sunset melt the troubles in my worry my back down on the granite I am tapped into the planet I hear the grinding of the glaciers that once carved these waterways 
And I sense the earth crust shifting, valleys sinking, mountains lifting. Flames are building on the fault lines that will snap one of these days. Yeah, it's a hazy California wildfire sunset at the end of another crazy California day. Above the smoke in the skyscrapers, counting beans and pushing vapors. There is humming in the servers, pushing data through the wires. And down on the streets below, homebound traffic's moving slow. On the radio, there's updates on containment of the fires. Oh, it's a hazy California wildfire sunset at the end of another crazy California day. And I'm feeling lazy, so I I'm just gonna let this sunset melt the troubles in my worried mind away. second reading. The title is 19th Century UFO. Unidentified flying object sightings began long before the Roswell incident of the 1940s. William Held and Dr. Case of Ukiah were riding northbound in a buggy on an early December evening, destination Centerville in the Potter Valley District. 
Their horses shied as a light flared from the darkness. Reining the team to a standstill, the two men gazed skyward to the west, where they plainly saw the outline of an elongated craft suspended beneath what appeared to be a balloon or some sort of gas reservoir. Jim Thornton, also heading towards Centerville, but a few miles behind Dr. Case and Mr. Held, struggled with a startled team when he, too, saw a similar object. James Spotswood of Pomo and E.E. E. Holbrook, the proprietor of the Centerville Hotel, spied the strange craft, too as a light disappearing into the distance at a wonderful speed. Just another unidentified flying object? Perhaps, but this sighting occurred in the late autumn of 1896, seven years before the Wright brothers first flew. Yes, there had been hot air balloon flights dating to the initial one by the Montgolfier brothers in 1783. However, that trip was sans passengers. The next Montgolfier balloon flight did hold passengers, a basket containing a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. The first manned and non-tethered free ascent of a hot air balloon occurred about six months later. The chemistry teacher, Pilatro de Rosier and the Marquis de Arlon soared aloft over Paris for 25 minutes, traveling about five and a half miles. Ben Franklin was, was among those who witnessed the event. As is often the ironic case, de Rosier proved the first victim of a hot air disaster. In 1785, his attempt to cross the English Channel in a hydrogen-filled balloon ended in a fatal explosion. Of course, manned balloon flights in the late 18th century and on through the 19th century were performed with something like a basket of varying size secured beneath. What the witnesses around Potter Valley saw in 1896 was much more like the UFO sightings that became more and more common after the Roswell incident of 1947. The Mendocino County residents of 1896 weren't alone. In the same week, Case Gilson, a young electrician from Oakland, noticed an unusual aerial traveler moving north and westward at what he estimated to be a 1,000 to 1,500 feet above him. He described it as resembling, quote, a great black cigar with a fish-like tail. The body was at least 100 feet long, and attached to it was a fish-like tail, one apex being attached to the main body, end quote. Gilson sighted the craft twice at 8 and 8.30 p.m. on a clear night with a brisk north wind blowing. He was accompanied by others who backed up his claims. Gilson's description went on. The surface of the airship looked as if it were made of aluminum, which exposed to wind and weather had turned dark. I saw all this distinctly, and I'm willing to take my oath to the truth of what I say. The airship went at a tremendous speed as it neared Lauren, South Berkeley. It turned quickly and disappeared in the direction of San Francisco. At half past eight, we saw it again when it took about the same direction and disappeared. Sightings were not confined to California. Similar descriptions of an airship near Mount Tacoma in Washington occurred in late November 1896. As word of the unidentified objects spread, so did mistaken sightings. The San Francisco Call noted, 
An amusing phase of the airship mystery was developed last night, and when that inoffensive planet Venus, sinking in the west, was mistaken for the clipper of the clouds, scudding across the Empyrean, the airship phenomena had legs beyond the west coast and into the following year. Folks in Nebraska, Kansas, and Iowa viewed it in early April 1897. Seemingly sober inhabitants of Chicago, Evanston, and other locales around Lake Michigan swore to the veracity of their description of an airship with a white light in the front as well as green and smaller white lights on its side, along with more green lights extending at its tail. In mid-April, two warehousemen, a pair of merchants, and four city officials claimed to see an airship above Clarksville, Tennessee. On the same night at Russellville, Kentucky, a comparable report emanated from a physician, a longtime merchant, and several other reputable citizens. Prior to that time, airships that vaguely resembled 20th century dirigibles had taken limited flight. In 1863, Solomon Andrews, a doctor, claimed to sail one in the sky above New Jersey as you would a sailboat. However, it must be noted that Andrews' ship was closer to a basket than the type of elongated vessel described in 1896 and 1897. There's no clear-cut answer to the airship mystery of 1896-97. Stories grew more fantastical during 1897 as the stories spread. Present-day readers should note that this was an era of yellow journalism, when editors were sometimes prone to manufacturing the news rather than report it. A preponderance of the California stories started in the pages of one newspaper, the San Francisco Call. Still, apparently normal citizens like the Mendocino County residents or the Bay Area electrician Case Gilson swore to the objectivity of their sightings. In April 1897, an Aurora, Texas report claimed an airship crashed into a windmill. The occupant of the airship was dead and mangled beyond typical identification methods. The craft was supposedly made from a silver and aluminum mix weighing several tons. Witnesses said that hieroglyphic-like figures were visible on the outside of the wreckage. Oh, that, that was a good story. <laughs> Again, that sounds like another movie. I found myself wanting more and was very disappointed when the book came to an end. Is there a sequel plan? To some degree, as I said, I've written that book about a single event. So I have that written. I'm just doing the tedious work of creating the notes for it, which in some of the cases in this book, the notes are almost stories unto themselves. There's notes about the Doc Stanley story that involve two of the primary Yuki figures in the story from years later and how newspapers overly anglicized their names and things like that. You know, as an example, a person named Shamia became Indian Charlie to white people. That's an example of one of the ways that uh, the native people of this county were made into lesser figures than who they really were. I also am planning another collection of stories, which I think might be titled Mendocino Murders, because there'll be that criminal aspect in each of the stories, and there'll be some 
other Doc Stanley stories, probably a Sheriff Burns story. Readers seem to like, you know, from Law and Order to other crime stories. People like crimes and seeing them solved or not solved. And there's a story that wasn't included in this, involves Doc Stanley to a degree, that has multiple twists, involves a woman um, on what was called Strong Mountain in the Sherwood area north of Willits and other figures and it goes on for years as well and has a an incredible twist to it later and includes one of the places I like to go the Sierras so those are on the horizon that's great like many writers you work with a writing group how does their feedback help you write a historical book it helps on any whether it's this book or just straight fiction you know my first published book was it's called Outlaw Ford and it went through writing classes and writing groups for multiple years before it, before it came out. And the input from writing teachers and the mostly other writers and groups is just invaluable from the big picture down to I'm in a group, have been for years, that will let you know when you should have used the instead of a uh, in no uncertain terms. You know. There's a man who just died this spring named Doug Fortier, who been in those writing groups almost as long as me. None of my books would have gotten published without Doug's assistance. Not that he wrote them, but you know, he was the person pushing and pushing. And it helps if you're just getting, oh, that's nice, or that sounds good, or I like it. Of course, that feeds your ego a little bit, but it doesn't make things better. There are other, you know, I could go on and on about all the examples of ways that uh, fellow writers have helped me. Yes, I know, Doug. It's a huge loss. Is Graywell Press a nomenclature for self-published? Yes. Okay. So why choose this route and has it been successful? You choose that route unless you're some John Grisham-like writer, because that's a way to, to get out there. And it has been successful in that Outlaw Ford and this book, this book has already paid for itself, making money in the black. That's also thanks to you know the willingness of Christy Olson Day at Gallery Bookshop. If it's important to you to have an agent and be published that way, go for it. There's The answer is that there's all sorts of ways. How many stories did you start with and how did you decide which stories to include? There certainly were more and they were edited out. Some of it had to do with were there photos for for figures in the stories or something that could be. I don't think that was the final line for because we kind of had to find photos that would fit for like the UFO story. But I think the Wanacott story got included because there were photos of Mr. Wanacott who longtime locals might remember had a photography studio in Fort Bragg and even at one time had a when he was in retirement had a little fishing hole south of town and there were photos of Edna May Wanacott his niece or grandniece which in Edna May Wanacott connects to Alfred Hitchcock which connects to the film Shadow of a Doubt which was filmed in Santa Rosa which was one of my mother's favorite films so was it hard to find stories that centered around a female character? Yes, it is. Women in the 19th century and well into the 20th century, didn't matter what you did, you were identified as Mrs. John Smith. You didn't even get your own first name in there. 
you were never who you were unless something unusual occurred. Like in Eliza Bowman's case, she was widowed. And I think most of the references to her refer to her as Mrs. Bowman. You kind of have to know who she was to know that it was Eliza Bowman. The historical record, as you point out, focuses on crime and gossip, stories that sell papers. In your research, what stories did you look for and couldn't find? Well, more stories about both the Native people, and and that means whether it's a particular story about an event, and again, women. Where did you do most of your research? A lot of it was, a lot of what I know about Mendocino County history has just been passed down to me by my parents, by my great aunts and uncles, and, uh, you know, then from their parents and aunts and uncles. I live on a place that's been in the McDonald side of the family since the 1880s. One of my great-grandfathers was a stockman who engaged in selling, trading, but mostly selling livestock, everything from cattle to turkeys. And he brought them from the Little Lake region, which is sort of the southern, I think the southern half of Willits today, from there to the coast. And in driving turkeys or cattle from Little Lake to the coast, uh, he usually brought some of his children along with him, one of whom married into the McDonald family. That's the connection between the Robertsons and McDonald's. And as they were, you know, to drive, to, the point is to drive turkeys or oxen or anything from the interior of the county to the coast isn't just a one-day affair. You know, so they had to camp out, and they often camped out next to the, the local Native people. And so my uh, McDonald grandmother, who was a Robertson by birth, and participated in those drives, learned a lot of uh, everything from herbal remedies to styles of cooking and things like that from uh, Native people that she had camped alongside of. And the McDonald Ranch actually has a place where apparently Pomo's had a semi, I wouldn't say permanent, but a, an off-and-on campsite when I was a child, you'd just walk along and find grinding stones and even pieces of, at least pieces of arrowheads, if not entire arrowheads. When the McDonald's were first there, the Pomo were still camping, but very soon thereafter, the Albion River Railroad, which was basically used to transport lumber, but not exclusively, the railroad uh, had a siding and I believe, and they also had a uh, kind of a, a railroad barn uh, very close to where the Pomo camped and the railroad people ran off the Pomos from camping there anymore. Anyhow, the perspective of having at least half of my family in one place for a long period of time is, you know, why I've written a book like this, why the Outlaw Ford book is essentially a bastardization of family history, actually using both my father and mother's sides of the family for that. You had to do a lot of fact-checking, I'm guessing. So, so, yes. Also, thank you for bringing me back. The Kelly House in Mendocino is a, a valuable source and was. At one time, that was about the only place you could get the old Mendocino beacons, and you literally sat there with you know gloves on and looked through them, and you looked for Doc Stanley, or you looked for references to John Robertson, my 
great grandfather or whatever, you know, Eliza Bowman or whatever you were looking for. And they had files on uh, anybody who was not even anybody, you know, almost anybody who'd ever lived in Mendocino for a minute amount of time had a file folder and you could look up all the connected, you know, stories about them. Along comes in just the last few years, things like newspaper.com, which I believe you have to pay for that one. There's also a California digitalized newspaper file, I think, or maybe foundation is the F, which is free. And having both of those helps because some of the newspapers that are covered by one are not are not necessarily in the other and vice versa. So that is an invaluable resource and kind of negates other than the things that are literally only at places like the Kelly House Museum or the Held Pogue House in Ukiah, which is the, the county historical society. And that was the held from the UFO story who was riding with uh, Dr. Case that fateful evening and seeing the UFO. So he was a reliable source. I've gone over there and cranked through the microfish to look at papers from the 1860s. There are some people, you know, fans who contacted me over the years. And a couple of those, they became and then have maintained an important they're important contributors to the, some of the stories in here. They helped me verify what exact year the crucial incidents in that Doc Stanley's first arrest happened. You do tie larger historical events to some of your tales. And what was your thought process for doing that? My thought process there stems from, there was an old, I'm not sure if it was a BBC program originally or just PBS, or it was called Connections. It's probably from the 80s or 90s, he would connect, you know, something from ancient Greece or the Sumerians to, from the Sumerians to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Dark Ages, and then to Da Vinci or uh, Gutenberg's press, and then from there to Jefferson or George Washington Carver, and you would see, you know, the connections that history has. And some of them are almost that, you know, time jumpy. How often do you write? When we're talking about creating a book like this or creating Outlaw Ford, it's a little more whimsical or my friend Donald would say, you know, like the muse is in Tahiti today, not here. But the bottom line is that you know, I wrote in newspapers for about 13 years in a row, you know, like every week. So you have to put your behind in the chair in front of the keyboard and just start. I would say that if you're writing a book, you my mother would say it would be imperative upon you to sit down and do some writing almost every day. I'm not going to say every day because there's days that you, as my Irish cousins would say, it would be a lay on day, which means, you know, sleeping in. Do you write it all and then go back and edit it or do you edit as you go? Something that you should get over is editing too much as you go. In my brain, it mostly wants to stop. I mean, it used to. I think I've gotten over some of this. I've gotten over that hurdle and just write the novel Outlaw Ford. I wrote that in my head a bunch, so much that I thought it was going to be this fictionalized story of one of my great uncle's life. And I got to about page 400 and he was only 18 years old and he lived to be 86 or 87. So I realized, oh, 
I guess we're not going to do his whole life. So I had to go in my head. I narrowed it down to, all right, there's got to be a whole story with a, a beginning and an arc and a change to the character by the time he's 18 or 20. Where can people purchase the Mendocino History Exposed? At Gallery Bookshop. Go to gallerybookshop.com. You can also get it at the bookstore in Fort Bragg on Laurel Street and Windsong. Thank you so much, Malcolm. It's been wonderful having you with us today. Thank you, Michelle, very much. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Next, I will interview Gwyneth Moreland and Morgan Daniel about songwriting and their upcoming release, Foxglove. But first, let's listen to Credence Clearwater's It Came Out of the Sky in honor of Malcolm's UFO story. Gwyneth Moreland and Morgan Daniel are well-known local musicians on the coast of Mendocino. Both play in multiple band configurations, including several with Gene Parsons and David Hayes. They are brother and sister. They both write their own songs. Gwyneth has released four CDs, one vinyl album, and an extended live album. Her most recent release, Country Nocturne, came out at the start of the pandemic. Gwyneth? Thank you, Gwyneth and Morgan, for joining us on Upwelling today. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to be here. We're going to start with a reading by Gwyneth Moreland of her song, Slaughterhouse Gulch. This piece can be found on her CD, Ceilings, Floors, and Open Doors, and will reappear on the Foxglove CD next year. Here are the lyrics for my song, Slaughterhouse Gulch. In the cold winter air, I can see the old mare breathing calmly under the pine. A watchful cat prowls along with the owls. Small things scurry, the full moon shines. And it all decomposes, even beautiful roses. New life springs forth from the mulch. This is where I call home, and wherever I roam, there is a cottage on Slaughterhouse Gulch. Thick coastal fog coats the whiskers of the dog as he follows the trail of the cat. High up in a tree is where he cannot be, and she watches him wherever he is at. The shadows grow long as I sit and write this song, and my heart is heavy with hope. You are a friend to me. And I love the mystery, and I think on this as I write each note. And it all decomposes, even beautiful roses. New life springs forth from the mulch. This is where I call home, and wherever I roam, there is a cottage on Slaughterhouse Gulch. Oh, thank you. That's absolutely beautiful. This question is for both of you. How do you begin a song? Do you write lyrics first and then create melody or vice versa? It happens both ways for me. With Slaughterhouse Gulch, it started with a guitar part. There's a little instrumental break in the song, and and then the song built around it. I wrote it during a time that I was touring a lot and away from home most of the year, and I was really feeling homesick. And the song is full of images from the property that both Morgan and I, well, we don't share the property, but we're neighbors and our properties are kind of one in the same <laughs> and our parents live next door and the images are of a lot of our pets and actually the dog and the cat image in the song is Morgan's dog, Arlo, <laughs> chasing their cat. But I remember sitting on Morgan's couch and watching Arlo chasing their cat and they were really having fun and going back and forth and that's where that image came from yeah so I think for me it happens both ways generally though I think I come up with melodies and then the words come later how about you I'm the opposite of that it's definitely words first for me 
And uh, if I have something I've been working on musically on my guitar that I might be able to apply to those words, I'll, I may pair things up, but I also may just come up with something completely different to match the words that I've written. Both of you seem to be inspired by the natural world. Do you spend a lot of time outdoors just observing the world around you? Well, I, I do, for sure. I really have a love for the outdoors, and uh, our family does a lot of hiking and camping every year. And, you know, we live in a, an inspiring place here in Mendocino, so it's uh, hard not to see what's going on around in the natural world here. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we've been really lucky to grow up and then be able to live our adult lives also here on the coast. And I know for me, yeah, the environment around us is definitely the biggest inspiration for me. I feel like my whole life and everything revolves around doing stuff outside. I have farm animals and spend a lot of time out with them and observing them. As siblings, have you always written together? We actually haven't written any songs together, which is kind of funny, right? That is, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I saw that. I, I've, I've wondered why we have haven't done that, and we've talked about it, but yeah. we haven't actually written a song together, yeah. which is an interesting thing to say after playing music for probably more than twenty years together now. Yeah, I will say though that. A lot of my solo work, stuff that's under my name, Gwyneth Moreland, um, Morgan has, you know, we've gone to Folk Alliance in Kansas City together. Um, We've done traveling around playing in San Francisco. He was my, we've been a duo playing my songs out and about. And definitely Morgan's guitar parts have shaped my songs in a big way. So I wouldn't say we've written lyrics together, but the parts that Morgan adds to the songs definitely, including, you know, Slaughterhouse Gulch, the new version that will be on the Foxglove album is kind of an updated version of the song, including some of Morgan's guitar parts and harmonies. His guitar work really adds a great layer to songs and um, writes his parts in a very harmonious way. Did you grow up in a musical family? Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say so. There was always music around and, and Our parents are musicians. They're not performers, but they're in the house we grew up in. There was always music around and there was always a guitar to play and a piano to play. And yeah, always music around. We we are half siblings. Um, I will say Morgan's dad, John Daniel, he was in a a barbershop (laughs) group. I I remember stumbling across a record when we were kids that... (laughs) Yes, my father, my my biological father, with whom I never or I didn't haven't lived with since I was very young, was a performer, and and there was certainly some influence there, but but that's it wasn't his house that I grew up in, and uh, there was I, I would I guess there's music both from environment and from in the genes perhaps on yeah. my side. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, mom and dad definitely played the piano, guitar, would sing to us and with us and the family. Our siblings are all really musical as well. Some have performed a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely music is a big part of the family. That's fabulous. What would you tell aspiring songwriters about your experiences as musicians and songwriters? Beware. (laughs) (laughs) I think, well, it's it's a hard... I don't know if, if if like someone's asking about career advice, I would say that that uh, 
I might caution against it as a as a career, unless I mean you know I mean I had dreams of it being a career at one point, but it's it just I think if you you'd have to put everything into it and then it's still a risk, and that's fine for some people. And I ended up you know getting married fairly young and having a family, and it wasn't something I could practically pursue as a career at that point. But but it has brought a lot of joy in my life. And that's, that's been a good thing. It's, it's been, I would say it's, it's important to pursue those things if that's what you like to do, uh, whether or not you're going to be able to make a living on it, you, you would need to keep your, your, uh, expectations in check perhaps and focus on what brings you joy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did throw my all into, you know, trying to make a go of, being a professional and I was a I guess a professional musician I did it full-time for a few years and um, lived in a van and toured full-time went into large amounts of debt (laughs) but and it was really hard work but I would not trade it for anything the experiences the people I met around the country at shows and festivals the other musicians yeah definitely all of that has shaped who I am and I would encourage if someone is in a in a position to go for it I think you should do either of you write poetry or prose I I have written very little poetry that I didn't intend to set to music I have on occasion and I don't know if I'd be able to find the shoebox that those scraps of paper are, are in <laughs> at this point but it's always for me been when it's lyrics it's been for music yeah I don't uh, I don't think I have done very much poetry as an adult I think in high school and in my yeah my younger self did more poetry Um, but since music became a focus it yeah it was all about lyrics and you know making the words fit around a melody Um, my husband on the other hand is a poet Skylar Hinkle and he has provided a lot of poetry that I have put to music. He's also a songwriter. He's also written many songs that I've, I've recorded, but also he loves to write poems. And you mentioned my latest release, Country Nocturne, is has a number of his songs and poems that I recorded. Morgan is going to read his piece, Hazy California Wildfire Sunset. This will appear on their new album, Fox Club, due out early next year. Okay, yeah, this is a song that I wrote primarily while I was hiking in the Sierra Nevadas and there was a, a fire building nearby and we were we were starting to be affected by the smoke and it it uh, I've written a number of songs while I'm hiking I don't have paper and pencil with me so I have to kind of memorize the lyrics in my head and keep repeating them and it's a good hiking activity that minimizes the pain of hiking <laughs> <laughs> carrying a big backpack so this is a uh, you know, as a coastal person, I've watched a lot of wildfire-affected sunsets, and this is what I was thinking of. So the chorus is, It's a hazy California wildfire sunset at the end of another crazy California day, and I'm feeling lazy, so I'll warn you, I'm just going to let this sunset melt the troubles in my worried mind away. The verses are in different settings, so the first one is from the backpacking trip itself, and it goes like this. With my back down on this granite, I am tapped into the planet. I hear the grinding of the glaciers that once carved these waterways, and I sense the earth's crust shifting, valleys sinking, mountains lifting. Flames are building on the fault lines that will snap one of these days. And then I I tried to imagine different California 
scenes and I you know I'm not really a city dweller but I wrote a scene for this song in the city too above the smoke in the skyscrapers counting beans and pushing papers there is humming in the servers pushing data through the wires and down on the streets below homebound traffic's moving slow on the radio there's updates on containment of the fires and then back home and on the coast the smoke drifts out on the ocean where there's rhythm in the motion pulsing like a telegram from the unknown world below and i'm left here believing that these signals we're receiving are a message that we surely know less than we think we know it's a hazy california wildfire sunset at the end of another crazy california day and i'm feeling lazy so i'll warn you I'm just going to let this sunset keep the worries in my troubled mind at bay. Thank you. It's a beautiful piece. Both of you, I think, are active in the community. Your parents, you have jobs, Morgan's and Luthier. How do you balance that activity with songwriting, performing, and all of the other activities that go along with that? Um, I think I think songwriting is just a reflection of all those things in in my life, or just things I'm observing. But it's it's all stuff that just goes on from day to day. I I do. I have noticed that not as much of my routine mundane life gets into my songs as things that inspire me when I'm traveling or doing something different. Like it, things hit my mind in a different way and I, I end up getting into the songwriting mode. But the mundane stuff gets in there too sometimes. Yeah, I think a lot of what influences my writing is the community. And um, when I sit and I think about the people I know and that I've known and experience I've, experiences I've had on the coast, I, all of that stuff definitely works its way into the songs. And um, yeah, I spend time contemplating different things that have happened or different natural events here on the coast. And that's what inspires me. Does your community work help you succeed? Yeah, I'd say for sure. I mean, I think the community, they show up to our shows and that just means the world <laughs> to us working together with local nonprofits and community centers and um, show producers all of that stuff works in combination for the musicians on the coast to succeed and I definitely feel that yeah I would second all of that we have a great musical community on the coast here and a very supportive group of people that have been with us all along we've been we've been doing music together for more than 20 years as a band now mm. it's actually this month is the 20th anniversary of our first recording <laughs> 20 20th year uh october of 2002 we mm. recorded our first live album and uh there have been people coming to hear us ever since and it's it's uh it's been a great collaboration are you performing locally in the near future i don't believe we have anything on the books right now uh, it's a little tricky you know with the pandemic we've uh, you know, this summer was a great opportunity to do a bunch of performing outdoors for me uh, and, you, and and for Gwyneth some too. I play in several different bands and played a lot. And uh, as things are cooling off and people maybe aren't as ready to go indoors for events yet, it's going to be a little limited, I think, during the winter. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, we've been focusing on finishing our album and so I think for our band Foxglove, that's been the main goal. I would imagine that once the album is finished and released, we'll be out and about to uh, present it to the community. We do the best we can, though. We play as much as we can and uh, looking forward to it, I bet, in the spring. 
So how can people find and purchase your music? Well, I think websites. You can always get in touch with either one of us through uh, foxgloveonline.com or gwynethmoreland.com or on Facebook. And all of our music, both Foxglove and Gwyneth Moreland, are on digital outlets like Spotify and Apple Music and uh, all of those. YouTube, if you don't have subscriptions to any of those, you can you can listen to most of it on YouTube as well. You've been listening to the fourth episode of Upwelling with Malcolm McDonald and local musicians Gwyneth Moreland and Morgan Daniel. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.